The information in this broadcast is for educational purposes only and is not provided as a professional service, medical advice, or is it intended or implied to be a substitute for diagnosis or treatment. You are encouraged to confirm any information obtained from this broadcast with other sources and review all information regarding any medical condition or treatment with your physician and other appropriate healthcare providers. Hi, I'm Pete Levine. Welcome to Noggins and Neurons, Stroke and TBI Recovery Simplified. I'm a clinical instructor and clinical researcher. I've co-authored dozens of scientific journal articles about brain injury recovery, and I'm also the author of the book, Stronger After Stroke. I'm Deborah Battistella, occupational therapist, creator of the OT's Guide to Mirror Therapy, and an OT educator. I have a lot of experience working with survivors. Most of my clinical practice has been in a certified stroke center. Pete and I are especially interested in talking about what rehab, neuroscience, and clinical research all have to say about the brain and recovery. But don't worry, our job is to make this stuff simple. We're here to make it so that everyone, clinicians, clinical students, caregivers, and most importantly, the survivor, understands what it takes to leverage their great neuroplastic brain for recovery. To quickly recap our previous episode on spasticity, in that conversation we learned what spasticity is and what it is not. We talked about the fact that it is undertreated, that about 60% of survivors have spasticity, we discussed the results of undertreated or untreated spasticity and some strategies for addressing it around the neuroplastic model. Number, and I asked whoever answered the phone, may I please speak to Dr. Ince? And he goes, hello and i'm in a panic because i'm like this is the guy it took me three days to find him and i'm like uh dr ince my name is pete levine and i'm doing a book on uh constraint induced therapy and um dr taub said that you were the first human to ever do it on humans and i'm really excited to talk to you and he goes i can't hear you they're doing construction outside wait let me close the door boom door slams and he comes back and he tells me this fantastic story. In 1967, I'm in a Macy's and I'm standing there next to this guy. I don't know who he is. And uh, and we're at a table with toys and our wives are going doing something. I don't know what they were doing. And he was fooling with this toy. I always imagined the toy was the monkey with the two symbols going. <laughs> and he was fooling with this toy and I, we got to talking and I'm a physiatrist and he was doing the stuff. And I, I thought I went to his lab in Brooklyn. He invited me there. And this is my best New York accent. I'm so sorry. You know, I was born in Manhattan, so I have a little bit of right to do this. And, um, and I asked him what you're doing with these monkeys. Can I do them with humans? And what I found was that it could be done with people. We did the experiment. We were the first to publish about it. And with some people, it was successful. With some people, not so successful. And some people, it was a total failure. 
And that's still where we are today. Constraint-induced therapy is not for everyone. I think you would agree. Yes, that's fascinating. What a cool life you have. I know, Lawrence Ince. He was so cool with me. Once he saw that I wasn't calling him to sell him life insurance or something, you know, he was... (laughs) So it was great. It was just great. And it sends shivers up my spine still. Yeah. Hey, Deb Adetzel, how are you? <laughs> hey, Pete Levine. Doing great over here in uh, Buffalo, New York. How are you? And it's still chilly enough uh, that you need socks. Is that true? It's chilly in the house. If I go outside and sit in the sun, it's not. Let me ask you this. Are you guys getting the Brood X, the uh, cicada infestation? Um, not yet. And I hope we don't because some of my dear family members have posted pictures on Facebook and it looks disgusting. Uh, I, I kind of like them. Um, they well, I the- like their sound, Pete, but not not just them yeah well they're they're doing their thing they come out every 17 years and they um and they do their thing um but i had an interesting situation my wife and i were sitting out on the back deck and um i came in to mess with the computer and i felt something in the back of my neck and i went ah i grabbed it threw it to the floor it was a cicada and then um i found one of his friends right next to him i think they just they sat in my hat and just took a ride in, indoors. Maybe they were like indoor cicadas. I don't know what happened there, but. And no wonder you didn't want to wear your hat. Yeah, I think they're still in there. <laughs> yeah, we were gonna have hat day today, but uh, but I balked. Okay, so what are we talking about today? Today's exciting topic is constraint-induced therapy and modified constraint-induced therapy. And can I just say that this is a topic that's near and dear to my heart because this is where my master's project stemmed from. And your friend, Dr. Page, whom I'm sure you'll probably mention at some point in this presentation. And, you know, if you don't, if you don't, Steve, I got your back. Um, (laughs) Too late. You already mentioned him. I know. Yeah. And he helped me out for a presentation that I had to give on field work. And I just was always so fascinated with the topic and appreciative of a researcher's generosity. You know, I was involved in that research too. You could have called me, but you didn't. Hey, you went to the, you went to the head. You went to the head of the department. That's the right. way you should do it. Remember how we talked about on those research studies, there's email addresses. I must have seen his and reached out to him. Did they not put yours on there? Was it second in line? Well, my name wouldn't have been first. Um, and I think because he was the principal investigator on those studies, only his email address would have been on there. The principal investigator and in studies have a lot of responsibility. They, they get the money. They set up the entire project. If something goes south, if there's an ethical issue, it comes down on them. So yeah, they get to put their email uh, in the article. So lucky him. Yeah. So I do find it kind of fascinating that I ended up with your book somehow. I have no idea how I even found your book years ago. And here we are. Another story for another time. Yeah, absolutely. Well, maybe we should get into it. Constraint-induced therapy. And what I would like to do is start out with a little bit of a history lesson. And I'm going to make this quick because I know people want to know how to do it, how to do constraint-induced therapy, what it involves, what sort of inclusion, exclusion criterion you need, how much movement do they need? Do they need a lot of movement or a little bit of movement? If you have rules of movement that come out of the research, can you mitigate them somehow for use clinically? Those kinds of burning questions. What do you use as a constraint? What's the dosage? All those things. I'm going to go over, but I want to start out with a quick history lesson. 
You could start in a lot of places, but I want to start with one Sir Charles Sherrington, a Nobel Prize winner, a Brit. And I think that history is important for a few reasons. First of all, it tells us where we've been, we can see where we are, and so it helps us predict the future. It celebrates the people that headed us in the right direction, and it warns us of mistakes. And there were some mistakes made. And maybe we'll see patterns in these mistakes and not make them in the future, maybe. Maybe if we're lucky. So it starts with Sir Charles Sherrington, a Brit, uh, born in the 1850s, died in the 1950s. He died at like 92, 93. Nobel Prize winner in physiology and medicine. I read the Nobel induction speech that they wrote to introduce him. And it was pretty incredible because they said, the way I read it was he he did so much um, that we're giving to him for all of that stuff that he did. He was a neuroscientist before neuroscience existed. You could argue the first neuroscientist. Let me just tell you how important this guy was. The um, the word synapse, he's the guy who came up with it. The word neuron, he's the guy who came up with it. And he drew it. He was one of the first drawings of, of neurons and synaptic connections. He didn't just talk about synaptic connections. He talked about neural networks, something that now we can see through diffusion tensor imaging. DTI. So if you see ever see these beautiful pictures of these very colorful tracks, T-R-A-C-T-S, that wind their way through the brain, those bundles of tracks are the neural circuitry that he was talking about in the late 1800s, early 1900s. So the guy was incredible. Now, uh, he did an experiment, and we've actually talked about this procedure before. It's called a dorsal root rhizotomy. Our last episode was about spasticity, and they do dorsal root rhizotomies in people who have, have spasticity. The rhizotomy is done on rootlets as they enter the spinal cord. And what they do is they destroy the reflex. And I mentioned in the last spasticity episode that spasticity is a reverberation of a monosynaptic stretch reflex. So if you can destroy that reflex, and they do it very selectively, they don't destroy everything. But if you can do it, you can reduce spasticity. And for people with very profound spasticity, this is a great tool. I am absolutely confused as to why it's not used more, especially in long-term care where people are suffering incredibly. It's non-reversible, but it's permanent, unlike just about everything else we talked about with regard to spasticity. But in any case, it gets rid of reflexes. I have one thought as to why it might not be used. What do you got? Money. Money? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's probably a pretty good reason. Yeah. It's often done in children with CP. I had another thought today about it it may be that older people, they're now so far into contracture that a dorsal rhizotomy wouldn't help open up their limbs. Maybe that's it. That makes a lot of sense, Pete. I was reading about that in your book today. And based on your description of it and the way that the muscle fibers change and become, they become more immovable. So maybe that is, that's probably a more likely reason than the one I came up with. So when you're a kid, maybe that contracture thing hasn't set in so much. And you have a lot of your life to live and maybe they think it's more worthwhile. Maybe insurance is more likely to pay for it. When you're older, uh, you know, and a lot of people have spasticity, a brain injury. And if you're older and you're institutionalized, they may not be listening to you very much. Bunch of different reasons. and And surgery can be scary for people as well. Right. Back in the day, a dorsal root rhizotomy involved breaking the lamina, which is part of the spinal column. They don't do that anymore. Um, It's a very small incision. And as I mentioned in the spasticity episode, it's about an inch long because they know right where they're going. 
They know where those rootlets come in. And so they're up and around. They suture it up and they're up and around the next day. It's not a big bloody affair. I did put on the show notes a video of a neurosurgeon doing it. Understand this is done all under the auspices of a therapist who's either written very detailed notes or is in the surgery with them. And the surgeon will say, okay, I got the brachioradialis here. We figured it out. We looked at it through EMG. It's definitely the brachioradialis. Now you said you wanted a certain percentage of the brachioradialis taken out so it doesn't have so much elbow flexion. How much do you want gone? Um, okay, doc, I want about 35% gone. That's what we estimated would be a good, okay, great. 35%, I can do that. And they start to snip. So now if you cut everything, if you cut all those rootlets, you would destroy the reflexes. And that's what Sherrington did. He did them with a kind of small monkey, crab-eating macaques, which are like the evilest monkeys in the world. If you've seen these videos in Thailand of crab-eating macaques uh, working in big hordes as they attack a banana because of COVID, there aren't any vacationers in Thailand, and usually they rely on them for their food. So now there's no food around. They're attacking humans and going into the stores and grabbing stuff off the shelf. Kind of evil little monkeys. But anyway, so that's what he used. Crab-eating macaques. Really, the way you were explaining that, Pete, I thought you were talking about the vacationers aren't there, so the macaques don't have any food. Like, they eat the vacationers. I am so sorry about that. That's <laughs> was a little confusing for a minute. <laughs> now I'm going to sit stock up in the middle of the night going, oh, the macaques are coming. <laughs> yeah, that would make a great movie. I mean, look at the videos online, just Thailand macaques attack. And it's this quite scary. I, I saw one the other day where they where a macaque uh, grabbed a, an infant, a human infant and dragged it down the street. And then the humans went after it and got it back. And I don't know, I think... I, that's worse than having a cicada in your hair. I'm pretty sure. I'm anyway, pretty sure too. And why to are you watching macaque videos? I don't. I think because I'm fascinated with this kind. This kind of work. And we call them rat choppers. Um, and Sir Charles Sherrington, Nobel Prize winner, was a rat chopper, except he was a monkey chopper. And what he did was he cut the dorsal roots, getting rid of reflexes. The reason he did that was he wanted to see if the monkeys would move after he got rid of the reflexes. Because if they didn't move, then he would know that at the foundation of movement were reflexes. So he does the surgery and the monkeys wouldn't move. And then he does, and this is in you know, the 1920s or so, it's quite early. He does essentially constraint-induced therapy. He constrains the stronger arm and he delays feeding, puts down food, and the monkeys wouldn't eat. They were starving, but they still wouldn't eat. And he said, aha, no reflexy, no movie. The foundation of all movement are reflexes. So let me... I'm, I'm going to quiz you, but if you, if you want to say, no, I don't want this quiz, Pete, you just shut up about this quiz, then because usually I do it to 45 people at once and somebody comes up with something, it's unfair to do this to you. But you know what spinal shock is after a spinal cord injury, right? So, yes. yeah, you know, in, in brain injury, it's called cortical shock. It's the same kind of thing. For a few days afterwards, the spinal cord is not online. And so the person is devastated. They think, oh my God, I've had this terrible spinal cord injury. I'm never going to move again. I'm paralyzed. Okay. Then after a few days, the swelling goes down and sometimes the person makes a pretty remarkable recovery. Phew. Dodge that bullet. Great. Okay. 
Now, imagine if you were to do surgery on a spinal cord. That's what this is that Sherrington was doing. He was doing spinal cord injury. Do you think you might expect that he would have come up against spinal shock? I would because the body's natural protection mechanism is to bring all of those nutrients to the injured area. And that's when swelling occurs. That's exactly right. It's this whole big metabolic soup, just like having a swelling and bruise in your arm or whatever. Doesn't feel good and your arm doesn't work very well. So yeah, that's perfect. You said that very well. Sherrington didn't take that into account. So there was going to be spinal shock anyway, and they wouldn't have been able to move anyway. And you know, he didn't give the monkeys a chance. Okay. So just so you know, what happened after that and how it influenced rehab for brain injury was that was called Sherrintonian reflexology. And the guy was such a behemoth that he influenced everybody, including all the professors that Edward Taub had. And we're going to talk about him. He's very important, integral, essential to this conversation. Sherrintonian reflexology that the reflexes were the foundation of all movement was dovetailed with something called the hierarchical theory. We actually talked about this too, that you would build somebody up after a brain injury the way you would build up an infant. You know, you'd start with the basic stuff and then you would build them up. And that was dovetailed into the reflex hierarchical theory. And that became the the push. And any therapist are going to recognize these names, Naughton Voss, Bobath, um, all these neurofacilitation techniques. Can we so, talk a little bit about what neurofacilitation techniques are, please? Why don't you talk about that? Well, I was thinking that you would. Well, I don't. So I mentioned this before. I'm not a big fan of it. Uh, the big one is uh, neurodevelopmental treatment. Um, it's this idea that if you touch somebody in a certain way, they'll get better. Um, I, I, it never resonated with me because that's you know, you don't have coaches touching athletes that much. You don't have music teachers touching musicians. But somehow, if we touch people with brain injury, they're going to get better. Now, I, I should say, and I mentioned this to you before, I teach in a physical therapist assistant program. We have a very smart professor there, Heather Stoner, who has convinced me that NDT does have value. And she's been very cool about this because she came to one of my talks and saw what I said about these neurofacilitation techniques. And she was like, she didn't blink. And she, but just through her teaching, just the force of the teaching itself taught me that there is room for that stuff to set them up to drive neuroplastic change later on. Yeah. So some examples, so when you were talking about the way you touch people, I know one big thing with NDT are the key points of control, which I think is beneficial because it is a good way to help a person move. So, you know, the hips are one of the most talked about and used key points of control. Another thing that people do when they're using these neurofacilitation techniques is tapping or vibration to the muscle or the tendon. And you mentioned that before in one of our other podcasts, which I can't remember. Neither can I. Okay. Yeah, one of them. I remember talking about it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I just I just wanted to clarify that for listeners who might not know what a neurofacilitation technique is. So thank you. Yeah, absolutely. And those key points of control will get the person in. But you're not going to drive anything out of the brain doing that stuff. And that's kind of, it's weird how that discussion is really where the two collide in many ways, in terms of these older researchers, in terms of what we're doing today. What is the primacy? Is the primacy with the brain or is the primacy with the spinal cord? Now, I have Berta Bobath. Berta Bobath is the person who came up with neurodevelopmental treatment. and. In her book, Adult Hemiplegia, published in 1970, 
The only person that she references more than herself is Sir Charles Scott Sherrington. So she was highly influenced by him. There's no, no question about that. So then one young Edward Taub in the 60s, late 50s, early 60s, he gets his bachelor's degree. I forget where he went for that, but he went to Columbia, which is a really good school. It's an Ivy League school for his master's degree in psychology. And he's sort of on the cusp, I guess, of going into his PhD. And he decides that Sherrington was wrong. He decides that if you did the right kinds of operant conditioning, this sort of B.F. Skinner stuff, that you could get these monkeys to move. Very ambitious for a student to do, especially when his dissertation committee, most of them were either disciples of Sherrington or taught directly by Sherrington. Very dangerous to go up against your dissertation committee like that. That's exactly what he did. But so let's go back to B.F. Skinner. He was a huge, a huge influence on Taub. B.F. Skinner was another genius, another guy who deserves a card, one of our neuroscience cards that we keep talking about. B.F. Skinner was working in a Pillsbury plant during World War II. It was in Minnesota and Pillsbury, you know, used a lot of dough, but they had retrofitted this plant to work on these military systems that Skinner and his team were going to work on. And he tells this story about how he's in this place and there's nothing but flour in the place and they're waiting for Washington to make a decision. And it's him and a bunch of other behavioralists, behavioral psychologists, and they're sitting around trying to figure out, well, what should we do? Well, we got a lot of pigeons, there was pigeons coming by every day, hordes of them. And there was a lot of dough there. He said, well, why don't we see if we can teach these pigeons to do some crazy stuff through our behavioral stuff? So they're waiting for Washington to get back with the equipment or whatever it is. And he starts to do these experiments. And the experiment they came up with, I'm not making this up, was to teach pigeons to bowl. Yeah. So they got these little balls these guys are geniuses and they're all bored waiting for the military to make decisions. He got these little balls and he set up these little pins inside this box. And with operant conditioning, what you do is you just wait for a happy accident. You wait for them to look at the ball. If they look at the ball, they get fed a little bit of dough. If they touch the ball, fed a little bit of, a little bit of dough. Okay, great. If they go back to just looking at the ball, they don't feed them. So it's always your what they later called shaping of behavior through successive approximations. And I know you know this because your dissertation was on this. So that's what they do. They take whatever the skill is, however complicated it is, and they bring it right down to the ability of the animal. Whatever the skill is in constraint-induced therapy, you bring it right down to the ability of the person with brain injury. Because otherwise, it's literally, quote, overwhelming to the nervous system. You don't try to get them to do too much. You're just chipping away whatever you got. Anyway, within an hour, they got these pigeons to be able to bowl and the ball was going all over the place and they're knocking down these pins and they, the pigeons were fat and happy. I just wonder what it is with guys and pigeons because my brothers had pigeons for a while when we were kids. You know, there's so many different ways we could go with that conversation. And I'm just going to go just because it's, it's kind of a you're saying guys and uh, we're dirty and we don't care about being sloppy. We poop all over the place. What do you want? I was not thinking that at all. You know how to bowl. I mean, what do you got? Well, really, I wish. Well, first, my my first thought was really, what is it with guys and pigeons? 
nothing other than that. Um, I wondered, did they know already how smart pigeons are? Because pigeons are very intelligent. And the other thing I thought was what a good use of their time to be thinking and to be thinking and using their brains and, and doing an experiment when they were just unable to do their job. Can you imagine if that was today, they'd all be on their cell phones bored to death. <laughs> They would, but that's why boredom, we need to get rid of those. Yeah, the boredom itself sets your head a spinning to new and interesting things to make sure that you don't drive yourself crazy. So there's research yeah. on that. Yeah, yeah. That's so, not um, the topic of this podcast. No, it's not. We got we straight and narrow. Okay, so um, Skinner's classic experiment, and I'm sure you've seen it. It's a rat in a cage, and there's a lever. You put the rat in the cage and you want him to hit a lever with its non-dominant forelimb in order to feed. But how do you teach a, a rat to do that? He doesn't speak English. You don't speak rat. So what do you do? You drop him in the cage with the lever. You don't do anything. If he turns towards the lever, you feed him. It, and then if he touches the lever, you feed him. If he goes back away from the lever, you don't feed him. So now he's obsessed with the lever. It means food. So he sniffs it. You feed him. That, that doesn't work. So he touches it with its dominant forelimb. You feed him once and that doesn't work. So now he's getting frustrated with you. He pushes down the lever really hard. It goes down. You feed him once, but it's still with his dominant limb. So now he's pushing down over and over again. Where's my little, you know, half a Cheerio or whatever. Ugh, stupid humans. And that arm gets tired. That forelimb gets tired. So he pushes it down once with the non-dominant forelimb. And from then on, you feed him. You've taught him that behavior. That's the same way you do constraint-induced therapy. Okay, so he does the surgery, right? He replicates it. He gets a surgeon and they, they have a lab, I think it was in Brooklyn. And sure enough, because of spinal shock, the crab-eating macaques couldn't move. And so he starts out by doing some rather cruel sort of experimentation. There was one where there was this ball and if the monkeys didn't squeeze the ball with their weaker arm and he had the stronger arm constrained, they would get a mild electric shock. And he would do this for hours. Now we can fast forward in the story and talk about how Taub was brought up on state animal cruelty charges. And that in many ways changed the way that we treat animals. We don't do monkey testing anymore. That's been phased out completely here and in Europe. And there's going to start phasing out all animal research because there's computer models that are better for this. I'm a vegetarian, so I'm sort of on both sides of this subject. But yeah, so that's another story for another day. But yeah, so he did that. I'm happy to hear that because I don't have pets, but I like animals and I don't think we should be cruel to anything. I agree. I mean, I'm not particularly nice to animals, but I don't eat them. So that's I gave at the office. Yep. Um, although I, I do love cheese. <laughs> so I haven't gone full. What is it called? Vegan. I haven't gone yeah. full vegan. I don't so, know how anybody can give up cheese. Yeah. So anyway. He starts to use the opera conditioning techniques. He starts, it starts with more positive reinforcers, and he's able to get them to move. He says, Sherrington was wrong. Okay, now this is the part of the show where I get to bring you something that nobody has ever heard before except me and Edward Taub. So this is a true story. So in Jeffrey Schwartz's book, which was the book that really introduced neuroscience to a lot of us in neuro rehab, at least, it's called The Mind and the Brain by Jeffrey Schwartz. Uh, Jeffrey Schwartz co-wrote it with somebody who writes a lot for Newsweek magazine and Time magazine. She's a, a science editor and a science writer, Sharon Bagley. And there was this person that Taub talks about that was the first person to ever do constraint-induced therapy in humans. 
In the interview in the book, Taub says that the person's name was Larry Anderson. So I emailed Ed Taub. This was years ago. And I mentioned this before. His lab and our lab have been at loggerheads to some degree because he was trying to get coding, that is financial backing for constraint-induced therapy clinically. We have these codes. CPT codes? CPT uh, codes, 97361 or whatever it is. And he was trying to get one specifically for constraint-induced therapy. Meanwhile- I would just put that under a therapeutic activity or neuromuscular reeducation. Right. And that's what our modification did. It just asked you to use the codes that already existed. And, and there was some tete-a-tete there and some arguments in mm-hmm. the Journal of PT about it. And we shut down the lab one day to kind of answer his letter to the editor. And I remember it was a big deal. So anyway. Yeah. At some point, we should talk about codes and billing because I know that is an area where therapists get tripped up in and they think they can use certain modalities and interventions. So at some point, let's cover that. Absolutely. So anyway, I I wrote to Ed Taub and I said, um, I wonder if you might, uh, if I might be able to trouble you for a quick clarification in the Jeffrey Schwartz book, The Mind and the Brain. He talks on page 147 about Larry Anderson as the first person who may have tried constraint-induced movement therapy in human populations. Later, there's a reference to Anderson's boss. Let me ask you this, Dr. Taub, who is Larry Anderson? Where did he work? Was he a therapist? I found no reference to anything stroke-specific published in uh, Medline by anyone named Anderson during that general time period. Any insight you might have would be much appreciated. And he responds, Dear Pete, Sharon Bagley, a co-author of the book with whom I spoke extensively, you can almost hear that the grit in his mm-hmm. voice, got the name wrong. It was Larry Ince. First guy to publish this stuff was a guy by the name Larry Ince. Hmm. Wow. Okay. So at the time, me and Steve Page were writing a book about constraint-induced therapy. There is a book about constraint-induced therapy in Pete's but not for adults. So we were going to write this. We had contacted the OPTA and they we had worked out an agreement. Anyway, so I wanted to do the history of this stuff. So I had to find this guy, Lawrence Ince, and I found him. That's awesome. And he was retired and he must have been 95 years old and he was living in Long Island. And I finally got his number and I asked whoever answered the phone, may I please speak to Dr. Ince? And he goes, hello? And I'm in a panic because I'm like, this is the guy. It took me three days to find him. And I'm like, uh, Dr. Ince, my name is Pete Levine and I'm doing a book on uh, constraint-induced therapy. And um, Dr. Taub said that you were the first human to ever do it on humans. And I'm really excited to talk to you. And he goes, I can't hear you. They're doing construction outside. Wait, let me close the door. Boom. Door slams. And he comes back. And he tells me this fantastic story. In 1967, I'm in a Macy's and I'm standing there next to this guy. I don't know who he is. And, uh, and we're at a table with toys and our wives are going doing something. I don't know what they were doing. And he was fooling with this toy. I always imagined the toy was the monkey with the two symbols going. <laughs> and he was fooling with this toy and we got to talking and I'm a physiatrist and he was doing the stuff. And I, I thought I went to his lab in Brooklyn. He invited me there. And this is my best New York accent. I'm so sorry. You know, I was born in Manhattan, so I have a little bit of right to do this. And, um, and I asked him, what are you doing with these monkeys? Can I do them with humans? And what I found was that it could be done with people. We did the experiment. We were the first to publish about it. And with some people, it was successful. With some people, 
not so successful and some people it was a total failure and that's still where we are today constraint juice therapy is not for everyone i think you would agree yes that's fascinating what a cool Larry, life you have i know lawrence ince he was so cool with me once he oh, saw man. that i wasn't calling him to sell him life insurance or something you know he was <laughs> fuck so it was great it was just great and it sends shivers up my spine still yeah Okay, so what I'd like to do is talk about Learn On You, something we've talked about in, which episode was that, Deb? I forget. That was, I think it was our first official episode. Oh, the, the first episode. Okay, way back then. Okay, so we talked about Learn On Use, and constraint use therapy is really a hedge against Learn On Use. So you'll remember, just as to review it, during the subacute phase, a huge swath of the brain, I already mentioned this, we mentioned this, it's cortical shock. As the brain gets rid of all the metabolites that are causing the cortical shock, the brain starts to rush back online, but it takes a while. There's cortical shock. And in the interim, therapists are very antsy to get this person going. And so there's a tendency during this period when the brain is coming back online to do compensatory movement. We also mentioned that the brain is full of BDNF, brain-derived neurotropic factor during the subacute phase. So it's this time when recovery can be accelerated, uh, but often there's this such a focus on function that people teach compensatory movement. And it's weird. If you do compensatory movement during the first few weeks, outcomes are worse for the weak side. And that makes sense because the brain is very competitive. What do you want me to focus on? I'm chock-a-block full of BDNF. Oh, you want me to focus on my stronger side? Oh, okay, I can do that easily. So the other thing too, Pete, remember, is that some therapists are afraid of doing too much because we we have learned that you can overuse and do too much and cause further damage. And so I just wanted to mention that again. Look at you defending therapists. It's about time. Absolutely. Yeah. So <laughs> Yeah. And you're right. And that's during the acute phase. Yeah, That's when you can make the infarct worse by doing too much. And constraint-induced therapy would be a good example of doing too much too soon. Okay. Yes. So don't even think about constraint-induced therapy unless it's for future planning. Yes. Agreed. And you can talk to the patient about it and caregivers, hey, this is what's going to happen in the future. But yeah. So while you're going through the subacute phase, the operant conditioning, if you will, is if I use the strong side, everything is positively reinforced because it works great. And if I use the weak side, it sucks, it's embarrassing, and I fail. So let's just use the good side. Now, here's a weird sort of stat. Let's say the weak side is the dominant side, the right side for most of us. And you teach compensatory movement to the non-dominant side. Because the brain is so primed to learn because of the brain-derived neurotropic factor, that non-dominant side will become more coordinated than it's ever been in its life. In fact, it'll become more coordinated than the non-dominant side of people who've never had a brain injury. That's how profound the compensatory stuff is. So as a hedge against learn non-use, constraint-induced therapy can do a lot, a lot of good during the subacute phase and then way into the chronic phase. Because one of the things that happens if you do compensatory movement, that penumbra comes back online and it really lies fallow for the rest of that person's life. So in some ways, chronic people are really good candidates because they have this portion of the brain that hasn't been used. So constraint-induced therapy, it has no special exercises, no special handling techniques. The therapist simply provides guidance. It's super easy. It's based on positive reinforcement, not Therex, therapeutic exercises, or neuromuscular re-education, whatever the heck that is, or any facilitation things. It's so simple 
that you can teach it to monkeys. Yep. You can teach it to monkeys. That's how simple it is. You can teach it to pigeons probably. And because it's like any other skill that we have to learn, patients understand the process. If they've ever played golf or try to play tennis or whatever they've tried to do, everybody's sort of familiar with the process. And it's foolproof. If all you do is what's called forced use, that is you put a constraint on the stronger side and have them live their life with their weaker side, in as little as 15 minutes a day, there's research that shows just doing forced use will drive cortical changes and drive changes in motoric behavior. Maybe not make them go from non-functional to functional, but will change motor behavior. So if you'd like, I don't know if you want to go through this, but the famous trial was the Excite trial. It was from Emory University, Stephen Wolf and that that gang. And, and uh, you know, obviously Taub was involved in that. It was the first big trial in humans. I think you should go through that because okay, absolutely. it's been a while was, for me. The participants had stroke within the previous three to nine months. So they were subacuity. I don't know if that's a word, but I'm just use it. It was single blinded. You know why it's single blinded? Because they know whether they have the constraint or not. You can blind the person that's collecting the data, but you can't blind the person that gets the constraint. It was 222 survivors, almost all ischemic stroke. So it's that kind of stroke that only hits that one part of the brain, not hemorrhagic where it goes in a lot of different places, but most of them were ischemic. They had two groups, 106 of them did constraint-induced therapy and 116 of them were the controls. Some of them were still in physical therapy occupational therapy, but they didn't do anything extra with them. And what they found was a statistically significant and clinically relevant improvements in the arm that persisted for at least a year. That's the great thing about research is you can go test people six months later, a year later. We always have post-tests. Okay, so now I want to tell another story about another researcher. His name is Stephen Page, Stephen J. Page, a colleague of mine for a very long time, very good boss. He was my boss for a while, and then we were sort of colleagues, and now we're, we're always friends. And I'm going to tell you this quick story. So we're at the Kessler Institute, and Steve goes on his honeymoon. He, he just married his wife. That's when you usually go on honeymoons. And uh, her name is Katrina. He calls her Kat. And they're in Hawaii. And he gets a call in Hawaii. This is, you know, year 2000, maybe 2001, maybe it was 1999. I forget. He gets a call in Hawaii from the president of the research arm of Kessler. The guy's name is Joel DeLisa. Here's what I remember about him. He was so big that you thought a guy from the NFL just walked through the door. Physiatrist, huge, intimidating. And he gets Steve on the phone. And this is me telling the story as Steve told it to me. You got to get back here. There was just an article in the New York Times about this thing, constraint-induced therapy. Edward Taub is doing it. And now, because we're in Kessler, Kessler is in New Jersey, right across from Manhattan. And like getting these phone calls, the phone's ringing off the hook. We need a constraint-induced therapy program. And Steve's like, I'm on my honey moon i'm in maui or wherever it was i forget where and uh is maui in hawaii i used to live in hawaii i should know this yeah it's in honolulu somewhere <laughs> so so um steve comes back and i don't know how he did this but very quickly he cobbled together both the dosage but he did something very smart first he did this survey of therapists and of stroke survivors ot's pts you know i got my wife to do one she's a pt 
We went into hospitals. We went to people in Kessler. We got stroke survivors to do it. And he asked a pretty simple question. Would you be willing to do the dosage that Ed Taub is suggesting? So what was that dosage? It was, I have it somewhere. Hang on one Isn't second. Isn't that like 90% of your waking hours? Yeah, I got it. So it was training with a therapist for six hours a day in the clinic, but then 90% of all waking hours, they were at home with a constraint, which at that point was a sling and a mid, not the way we do it today. It's a little overkill. A little overkill and very dangerous. It becomes yeah. a restraint. We want it to be a constraint that they can doff it. They can take it off by themselves whenever they want to. So 90% of all waking hours, once they got home and they were exhausted from therapy, 90% of all waking hours, they had to wear a constraint on the stronger side, forcing use of the affected side. It was 10 days total. They gave them the weekends off. So it was five days and then the weekend, five days for higher level people as determined by how much movement they had in their limb. And 15 days, they gave them an extra five days for lower level people. So Steve, you know, we went out and we gave these surveys to everybody. And what we found was that 80% of therapists didn't have the ability to do it. They couldn't clear their schedule to do it. They were worried about reimbursement. They were worried about conditioning. How would these people that haven't been doing much all of a sudden going to be doing all this stuff with their affected side? They were worried about compliance. What if they go home and they just go to take a nap? That's not going to help if they have a constraint on their stronger side. They got to be doing stuff. 60% of their survivors would not want to participate. They were concerned about adherence, loss of independence, mobility, and the time that it would take. We published that in 2002 in the Journal of Clinical Rehabilitation. Awesome. So Steve comes out and he based it on motor learning. So his motor learning degree really helped him with this. And what we did was we flipped the emphasis from the clinical interaction. They had some of that, but they did a lot more forced use at home. And But the hours ended up being about the same as Taub did. It just didn't burn through so much clinical time. And it was a half an hour, three times a week with an OT. I'm going to talk about doing it with the lower extremity, but this was upper extremity. It was with an OT, although I think we had some PTs elbowing the way in as well. And then it was five hours a day where they did forced use at home, constraining the stronger side, forcing use of the affected side. And they had to do it during active, wakeful, productive time. So again, they couldn't just put on the constraint and take a nap or sit, sit down and watch TV. They had to be doing feeding and doing all these kinds of things. So can I just clarify, during, during that time, it's typical daily activities. Did they have some, some of those clinically designed activities um, that they should be doing if they weren't, like if they didn't need to get dressed and they didn't need to wash their face and brush their teeth and all of that stuff? Maybe we should have, but we didn't. What we did have was something called, that I'm sure you're you're aware of this, uh, the motor activity log, the MAL. Yeah. And what it does is it makes them every day, them and the caregiver, write down how much they use the limb and what they used it for. So it kind of pushed them. The, the motor activity log itself, this paperwork, was part of what Ed Taub calls the transfer package, transferring what you're doing clinically back to home. And it pushed them into, well, wait, this is asking me about feeding and I forgot to feed with my constraint on. Okay, next time I'll do it. And it pushed them into that. That's one of the things that I did learn from the, um, the Brain Science podcast with Ginger Campbell. I listened to an episode with Dr. Taub and he was talking about the home program and when, when they were doing their constraint-induced therapy, their modified program, they would only... 
um, they would only allow people who agreed to do the home program participate. And then there was this, they built in a strategy for them to follow up with, with the clinic for just to promote follow through, which I think is important. And it really solidified for me the importance of everybody being on the same page, because if you care more than your client does or their survivor, if, if the caregiver cares more, it's not going to work. You have to have the survivor's agreement to do this. Yeah, you do. Unless you're a monkey. Unless you're a monkey. There's one other population that they don't really ask permission, and that's children. Children. Yep. And they'll cast them because kids, when they take off that constraint, they never want to put back on. And often it's done in camps where every other kid has a cast on their stronger side. Just as a clarification, the modification of constraint-induced therapy, we were, Steve and I were the first to do it. Steve was, Steve was really the first. Hey, Steve. Um, so we would be the modified one. Tab would be the original. But here's the weird part about it. Every once in a while, I do a talk down in Birmingham. And Taub always sent a spy to that talk. It was really unusual because I'd be like, wait, why are you at my talk? You guys invented this stuff. What are you doing here? And I always, I, I knew to ask, does anybody here work at the Taub clinic? And they go, yeah, I do. Okay. So why are you here? You know, are you a spy? You know, all kinds of people send spies to my talks. Anyway, I'm maybe I'm paranoid. You, I'm surprised they let you even be there. Yeah. It's their town. <laughs> Get out of town. I'm Edward Taub. <laughs> Yeah. So, um, but even well, right. You know, maybe, maybe I can help Dr. Taub a little bit here. I think he should be honored that you have taken his work and modified it. The sincerest form of flattery? Well, he's somebody had to start it. And if people are never questioning, things don't ever improve. So, I mean, if he didn't question and make modifications, we would not be where he we are now. So I think he could look at this from a very um, positive light and still send spies to your talks. <laughs> yeah. And in his defense, you always go too high with the dosage because you want the biggest clinical impact. Because if it looks like it's working, you want to make sure you got enough of it in there. And when these spies would come, I would ask them, are you still doing six hours a day? And they said, no, we've, we've modified it too. And we've modified it down. So now the research has gotten to the point where there's modifications, the modifications, and then the way therapists do, do it is even further modified. There's no reason the therapist can't do this. Look, a doctor, doctors do this all the time. Look, I think the dosage for that pill is too much. We're going to cut it in half, but we're going to tweak this pill over here and do a little bit more of that. And then you can dovetail it with things like mirror therapy or e-stim yeah. or whatever it is that you want to. So if you look at the large meta-analyses now of constraint-induced therapy, it looks like the dosage should be between the repetitive practice in the clinic, and that's what they're doing in the clinic. They're doing a lot of repetitions of wrist extension, a lot of repetitions of grasp and release, a lot of repetitions of elbow flexion extension. But if you take that repetitive practice and then you add to it the forced use time at home where they're just wearing a constraint on the stronger side, and forcing use of their affected side, the dosage seems to fall down between a half an hour and three hours a day between the two of them. So it's come down dramatically. Yeah. Just because I wanted to see what some of the current literature was saying about constraint-induced therapy, I found this one article from out of Ithaca College here in Ithaca, New York, 
Ultimately, they looked at constraint-induced therapy and modified plans. Everybody had improvements. The people who didn't engage in constraint-induced therapy either type, they didn't have as long a carryover of results as the people who engaged in the modified or the constraint-induced therapy program, which makes sense because they've been using their limb more, the people in the constraint-induced therapy program. So there's probably better carryover at home. Yeah, that's the holy grail, right? Once they start to use their affected side limb in a way that's functional, and then the brain takes care of it because the brain sees it's important. You're forcing, forcing, forcing the brain into a new and uncomfortable but productive area. Anytime we learn anything, we got to force our brain into an uncomfortable area. Truth. So it makes sense. To your point, it makes sense that it would last longer, be more robust than some of these other things that give them the option of bilateral movement, et cetera, et cetera. So let's go through those qualifications. What would make somebody a good candidate for this? What kind of movement do they need? Because if you just tie up the strong arm and they are flaccid or they have spastic paralysis, that's just mean. So you got to have some movement there to jump off of. And the rule simply is called the 10-10-10 rule. It's 10 degrees at the wrist. And you actually asked this in another podcast, and I never answered it. You said, from any posture? Yes, from any posture. It just needs to be an arc. Yeah, they're going to be flexed. You could just go 10 degrees from that full flexion. Okay. Yeah, that's what I wanted to know. It's a good question. Then the second 10 is 10 degrees of abduction at the thumb. And I always get confused about thumb movements. What's the abduction? What's flexion? I mean, it's, it's confusing. I know. So I would just say 10 degrees in any direction for the thumb. Okay. And then the last 10 is 10 degrees of extension in at least two additional digits. Now, extension is weird because we have multiple joints. We have the MCP, the IP, and the DIP. It, just in one finger, there's a bunch of different joints. And they're really only talking about 10 degrees in any of those joints. And we established before when we talked about this that 10 degrees is not a lot of motion. It's a crazy small amount of movement. Mm -hmm. In fact, because goniometric measurements drive therapists so nuts, and because they're going to do all kinds of compensatory movement as you're trying to measure them, it might be kind of hard to get that with a goniometer, which is the way we measure joint angle changes. So University of Oregon came up with another one. I think this is legit too. Can they pick up and release a washcloth with any kind of prehension? That is, it, it doesn't matter if it's the pinky and the palm of the thumb. Can they pick it up and drop it three times within one minute? So the 10, 10, 10 rule, it's all that extension three times in one minute. And if you use the University of Oregon one, pick up and release the washcloth. It also has to be done three times in one minute. I like that one. It's easier. Yeah. And we've all seen this phenomenon where stroke survivors, and I used to test them out the wazoo constantly for years, and they'll do something the first time and they can't repeat it. But because constraint-induced therapy asks for lots of repetitions, they have to show the ability to repeat it. But there's another group, and it's called the Severe Sensory Motor Deficits Group. Can we bring it down to lower level people? And the Severe Sensory Motor Deficits Group is just the ability to wipe a towel across the table. So your hand is flat on the table, and your hand isn't doing anything. It's just the elbow and the shoulder. Now, why would that be good? It expands the therapeutic footprint to include more people. And it brings, look, the shoulder's important. The elbow's important. Why is it getting dissed just because the hand's not there? And besides, the hand is complicated. It takes up half the brain, it seems like. It's not that much, but a lot of the brain. In the meantime, let's get the easy joints out of the way. Because then when the hand is ready to lock and load, um, then at least you have shoulder and elbow to get the hand to where it needs to be. 
I really like that. I never heard that before. Then there's other studies that work with with lower level people. Um, Michelle Plowman, who's one of the great Canadian uh, stroke researchers who wrote the, the, is it called the, I don't even know. She wrote something in my book, the preface or the forward. I think it's, is it the preface? Is that what you get other people? Yeah. Look, Michelle Plowman, hopefully she's in there. Um, So she was nice to write write whatever that was. (laughs) I'm embarrassed. Um, But she said proximal movement with the shoulder and the elbow. What was it? It's the the forward. forward. It's the forward, apparently. (laughs) Kids, listen, uh, you mentioned Ithaca College uh, a minute ago. I went to Ithaca College. I was a phys ed major for a year and a half, and all I did was drink and play rugby. I drank and I played rugby, and then I came home with a failure to launch. Um, But yeah, so... Thankfully, some people who go to Ithaca College do a little bit more. Maybe they they were drinking during this study. Who knows? Yeah. So anyway, Michelle Plowman has nothing to do with the drinking or any of that. But her thing was proximal movement that is at the shoulder and the elbow, but no wrist or finger extension. Other ones have done no isolated wrist or hand movement, no ability to move the fingers. That was one of the Taubes groups and uh, as low as Brunstrom stage two. And we can talk about Brunstrom stages, but I don't want to do it. So low level people, that's, that's my point. So are you going to talk about outcomes for people at those lower levels? Like what do, what do their outcomes look like? You know, I'd have to go into the research. We would expect not for the hand to come back because that's not the focus. Mm-hmm. I would fully expect that those outcomes would, you know, repetitive practice drives cortical change, cortical change reduces spasticity. We talked about that in the last episode. We would expect more active range of motion at the shoulder and the elbow. Yeah, that's cool. And that can help with some basic ADLs, just completing some things like bathing, being able bathing. to wash under your armpit, uh-huh. putting a shirt on, taking it off. Oh, yeah. Dressing. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. It would help you if you stumbled and you needed to correct your gait. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you don't fall. Yep. Yeah. I love that as a PTA, you're always bringing in that gait component. Yeah, absolutely. And the falls. I mean, we did a whole episode mm-hmm. on falls and how dangerous they are. We did. And that's something that is very concerning and required for people to participate in a constraint-induced therapy program because they have to have that balance sufficient so that they can transfer while the other limb is restrained, yeah. even though they're just wearing a mitt now. You can almost hear the shoulder and the elbow saying, oh, look at the hand. Gets all the attention. Gets a glove. Oh, look, it has a glove. Ooh. What about us? Yeah, so good. All right. So what should the constraint be? So for... I'm just going to pause for a second because you're breaking up and I'm afraid we're not recording. So we'll see how this goes. You know what? You froze, Pete. You're, you're frozen. You're still breaking up. We have you frozen or I have you frozen. And it says that my internet connection sucks. So we're going to just wait, wait for my son to get off his gaming. You know what? Everything that you just said for probably the past 30 seconds. I think it was my problem. It was a problem on my end. I, I stopped as soon as I saw oh. you freeze. You were like, oh. I said, I better stop. Okay. Okay. So we'll, we'll figure all that out. So the next question is, okay. what constraint B? And Ed Taub for a while used a sling and a mitt. So did we. It's too much. Why? For exactly what we talked about, if you need to catch yourself, you can't catch yourself with your good side. So it should be something on the hand. An oven mitt works fine. How did you, like, did you just start thinking about this? Or did people complain about wearing a sling and a mitt? Like, what, what prompted thinking it, towards change? It was probably death by a thousand cuts. It was probably, as I remember it, 
the caregivers um, complaining about having to put two things on and it's, it's hot out. And do we really have to have both? It was also the, the spirit of the word constraint means that they can take it off or put it on themselves. As you know, restraint is highly frowned upon. We've had situations where people really have been restrained that have mental illness or that have brain injury because they might hurt themselves. And it's a big deal. So um, we started thinking deeply about what a constraint actually was. And so an oven mitt works great. For a long time, what we had was one of those mitts that they have in hospitals to protect the hand. It's very padded on the back and there's a Velcro closure. But of course, they can't undo the Velcro closure because that's their affected side that had time to do it. So yeah, so we went to just like oven mitts. Oven mitts seem to work fine. And then if they need to doff it, they stick it under their armpit and they pull it off and they're good to go. Yeah. So when did it, when was it okay that they not use the constraint? There were certain situations during the five hours a day where they had to take it off for good reason. Ambulation, if that's going to be interfered with, maybe they need their assistive device, their cane or their walker or something. Yeah. Stairs, don't want it on stairs. You need the rail. Water tasks. Yeah. Water tasks are like, well, it's it's very much an OT term. So I'm going to, well, tell me if I get this wrong, but bathing, dishwashing, anything that gets mm-hmm. water on your oven mitt, that's not good. Toileting. No. and yeah. Toileting, that would just be that mean. Hand. That'd be mean. It would be. Make them toilet with their weaker side. That's just, that's wrong. And then one other big oh, one, yeah. driving. Don't have them driving with their affected side. Mm. Yeah. Or at least if you do, let me know so I know not to get near them. Because that would be a bad thing. Here's some frequently asked questions. What about compliance? It's always a big question. Why is it a big question? Because it's a lot of hard work. Here's the thing. If you like beautiful movement, this is not your thing. If you think that people should move perfectly right out of the box, run away from this one. If you think that you're going to put your hands on them and make them move beautifully because that's what you were taught in school, this is not for you. Here's what happens with constraint-induced therapy, and they've done this study. The person comes in, they do the fMRI, and there's no activation when they ask them to move the hand. Then they do the training, hours of training. At the end of the training, they do the fMRI again, And that portion of the brain is active. They come in the next day. They do the fMRI. It's back to baseline. They do the hours of training. It's back up to, it's activating. What the heck's going on? They come in the next day. It's back down to baseline. They do the hours of training. It's right back up and the brain is active again. They come in the fourth day. And when they come in in the morning, they do the fMRI and the brain is active. It takes three or four days for the brain to catch up. Sorry, if you don't like the brain, the way the brain learns, eh, find some other way to learn. But the brain takes a while. And I mentioned this in one of the podcasts. If uh, you don't think this has value or you don't think this works, you should really challenge yourself in some sort of metoric way. Um, I know that even in bachelor's degrees, often for neuroscience students, they have them learn to juggle because it's very difficult motorically. And motor cognition comes into play motor movement is cognitive. It's going to be hard. And you're asking for some other part of the brain to do this skill. It really is learning for the first time. Mm-hmm. So. so one of the things that um, about the, the Taub therapy clinic, they're not doing constraint-induced therapy anymore. Some of their therapists who have done it can do it privately, but they are doing um, a cognitive intensive therapy type of thing. 
And they talk about people's struggles with cognition following stroke. And then one of the pieces of this CI therapy for the, for the cognition is that transfer package that you were talking about and where they carry this over to their everyday tasks at home. And it just makes me think about all the, everything that we do. We don't just do a motor task or we don't just think. We are an integrated whole being. And you can't just pull those out and separate them. So whatever you're working on, if you're working on a motor task, you're going to improve your cognition. If you're working on cognition, you're likely going to improve your motor abilities. Am I right about this? Um, Listen, I'm still like out of my mind interested in something you said first, which is they're not doing motoric constraint-induced therapy? No, the clinic is permanently closed. Wow, they're still doing experiments on it, aren't they? Mm -hmm. They have a... um they have the CI therapy research group, but they're currently recruiting for cognitive deficits. So they're looking for people with brain fog, difficulty thinking, trouble with decision making, and memory deficits. And they're doing this CI cognitive therapy. And it, it combines speed of processing training with a modified form of the transfer package from CI therapy. And I, I, I just found this today. I think it's fascinating. That is really quite interesting. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, so I didn't know that they had stopped doing it. Yeah. Hey, everybody. Sorry to cut in. We had either underestimated the amount of information we had or overestimated the amount of time we had. But in any case, we've decided to turn this into not one episode about constraint-induced therapy, but two episodes. So the next episode... CIT2 will be launched here in a couple of days, and we'll go into some more frequently asked questions about constraint-induced therapy, whether it can be used for people acutely, how it's used in children, and then quite a bit about lower extremity constraint-induced therapy. How is it done in the lower extremity? Do you tie up the good leg and have them hop around for a while? And we'll give you four different options for that. And then some more about the transfer package, some of the paperwork that goes along with constraint-induced therapy. Great. Thanks a lot. Talk to you soon. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. We appreciate your support and would love to hear from you. Ask us questions and share your thoughts by email at nogginsandneurons at gmail.com. That's noggins, the word and, spelled out, neurons at gmail.com. If you like what you heard, please share this podcast with others you think will benefit. Also, be sure to subscribe and leave us a review. We'll catch you next time on Noggins and Neurons, Stroke and TBI Recovery Simplified.